The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a pretty popular story. Uh, even for people who don't open their Bibles or set their feet in church, they're somewhat familiar with this story. You'll maybe hear on the news, somebody gets called a Good Samaritan, and usually what that means is, there's somebody who has done some act of kindness uh, to a stranger. And I think uh, it's well-known. It's a well-known story because of our history of Christianity, or at least Christian values in our country. And I think it's still a well-known story because it's a story that we can all kind of agree, like we can root for the Samaritan. No matter what our religious background is, people can kind of respect and honor the Samaritan for what for what he did. So as we come to this passage in our Luke series, uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37, uh, we have to ask the question, is it even really worth a sermon? Uh, we all kind of know what's happened. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Good Samaritan. He's good. We should be like him. And the story, do we really need 30 minutes of preacher talk to get there? Um, well, uh, I am here. Uh, so you could guess maybe my answer. Um, but while the story is familiar-ish to us, I wonder if the context within the story, within which the story is set, is also familiar. I wonder if sitting right there, you could kind of figure out, like, where, why does Jesus tell the story? You probably know that Jesus told the story if you've been around church, but why does Jesus tell the story? And I think what we'll see is that when we see why he tells the story, and we look at this well-known passage within its context, and in the context of our lives, we're actually going to get a slightly different image. Uh, it's a little bit like a lenticular image. Stay with me. You know what this is. Do we have a picture of this? Yes, we do. A lenticular image is what it was like. It's usually like on a kid's thing where you look at it from one angle, it shows a picture, you change your angle, and it shows a different picture. You all know what I'm talking about? I know you've never heard of a lenticular image. I had to Google it. I was like, I, was like, I need a picture of this. What do I Google? A picture with two edits. Well, it's called a lenticular image. And, uh, and so what I think was going to happen for us is when we're going to look at this passage, we're going to kind of expect like, okay, yep, Samaritan's good. Do likewise. But then we're going to really dig into its context and we'll see, hopefully, uh, more picture, maybe more that we thought was there. Um, so turn with me to Luke 10, 25 through 37. 
Uh, I think we'll have it up here if you have a paper Bible. That's awesome. It's going to help us to really dig in uh, to, the, to the scriptures as we go. Um, Luke, if you have a text Bible, Luke is after Matthew and Mark, um, and we're in the 10th chapter. And as you turn there, uh, here's, I want to kind of lay out for us what I think we'll see as we go through this. First, we'll see a love problem. Then we'll see a love story. And then it's going to end with a love command. And here's what I think the big idea is. Here's, here's what I want us to receive. I think the Lord wants us to receive this this morning. He wants us to let costly love be our life's aim. To let costly love be our life's aim. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, we come this morning uh, with an array of feelings. Maybe we come joyful. Maybe we come uh, heavy. Um, we come with an array of circumstances. Maybe things are going well for us. Maybe things are hard for us. Maybe we've, things are hard for our, uh, the people around us. But Lord, I pray that through looking at this passage together this morning, that your love for us would be so evident. And that in that, we would find new strength to love the people around us. So be with me, Lord. Be with us. Speak to us uh, this morning, I pray. Amen. So here's how the passage begins, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? What, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the first thing we notice about the circumstances that give rise to this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that it comes within an exchange between Jesus and a lawyer who wants to test Jesus, someone who wants to trap Jesus in his words. And we have to remember that when the, the Bible says lawyer, it's not talking dark suits, briefcases, some time ago, they passed the bar exam. When the Bible says lawyer, it's talking about, uh, remember this is 2,000 years ago, Jerusalem. The law is the Old Testament. So a lawyer is actually a religious, is religious by trade, but not the good religious, kind of like the empty religious. So lawyers, scribes, Pharisees are often kind of talked about together. And here's an example of the way that Luke kind of portrays this group, lawyers, scribes, Pharisees. So this is in Luke 20, 46 through 47. I think I have it up here. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is how... Luke kind of portrays somebody like the lawyer, and true to form, the lawyer stands up in this story to test Jesus, to try and trap Jesus. And we encounter here the lawyer's love problem. Uh, he, he stands up, he doesn't love God, he doesn't stand up as one judged, he stands up before Jesus as the judge. So I'm a high school teacher, and when I give tests, uh, I, I test students, and I have the credentials, the experience, and the 
authority to grade my students. I'm the one who puts them to the test because I have something that they don't have. Well, in this case, the lawyer comes into contact with Jesus, and the lawyer believes that he is in the position to test Jesus, to decide whether Jesus is correct or not. In our lives, when you and I have come into contact with Jesus and Jesus is teaching, what is our posture towards that? As Christians, we believe that we don't have the credentials to approach Jesus and sift his teaching. That's right for me. That's not right for me. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he has the authority and the wisdom to show us what is good, true, and beautiful, and to approach God in this way, humbly, eager, ready to receive, is to love God. It is the right way to relate to God. When the lawyer tries to approach Jesus as the judge, look what happens here. He asks his test question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Kind of throws in the teacher, like, teacher, what shall I do? And then Jesus, being the masterful teacher that he is, he flips the script. He doesn't play the game. He, he doesn't answer the question. He actually asks another question in response. Look at it. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He puts the lawyer on trial. And the lawyer responds with his answer. He must love God, or I must love God, with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself, to which then Jesus renders verdict. That is correct. Go and do likewise. Because in the end, Jesus is always the judge. In the lawyer's case, and in our case too, Jesus has the last word. So the answer that the lawyer gives here has been called the double love principle. Love God and love neighbor. And it's, it's, we, we should expect that this would be at the center of the question of eternal life and that, just, that it would be a, a focus of importance because we see in other parts of the Bible how when Jesus is asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is where he goes to, the double love principle. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as yourself. But what might surprise us about where it's brought up here is that it's in response to a question, how do I get eternal life? And why that might, might surprise us is that if we're familiar with the Protestant faith tradition, we believe that the Bible teaches that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have rebelled, meaning we can't live out and live in the glory of God, and we don't deserve to be with him, sharing that glory forever. It doesn't matter how many gold stars we get in life, we'll never attain God's goodness or glory. But Jesus, who is God, comes to earth, full of love and power, to take the punishment of our, of, of our treason, our treason against God that we've earned, and instead gives us his goodness and qualifies us to share in God's glory. But here, in this passage, says, how do I inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Do this and you will live. It sounds kind of like Jesus is saying, you can get gold stars enough to get you into eternal life. What's happening here? In order to understand what's happening here, we have to remember the posture with which the lawyer comes to Jesus. He does not come to Jesus in love. He does not come as one judged, seeking mercy, seeking love, seeking answers. He comes as judge. 
And what that gets him is what he wants. His own ideas are reinforced. Jesus affirms the answer that is technically true. Yes, loving God with every fiber of your being and loving everyone around you as much as you love yourself will get you eternal life. The answer is technically true, and it is functionally impossible. Um, so it would be a little bit like if someone came to me and they're like, Andrew, what must I do to inherit the Powerball jackpot? And I said, well, how do, you, how do you read the rules? What does it say? And they said to me, well, I pick a number between 1 and 69. I, I, I have never played the Powerball. I had to Google all this. I pick a number between 1 and 69 on five different white balls. I have to read this line for line just to make sure it's right. And then I have to get a sixth Powerball right that is between the numbers of 1 and 26. And I say to him, that is correct. Do this and you will win. Everything in that is true. We talked about how to win. And it might have sounded really easy. Oh, I just have to match six numbers. But functionally, the odds of winning the Powerball, again, this is right, I looked this up, are 1 in 292,201,338. Um, technically true and functionally very, 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 very difficult. The man's misguided view of himself keeps him from seeing his glaring love problem, that he cannot, that he does not love God, that he cannot, and with every fiber of his being, that he cannot love neighbor as he loves himself. If he were aware of that problem, if he really understood the situation that he was in, he would not have come to Jesus wanting to see Jesus' intellectual answers and whether they matched his. He would have come to Jesus desperate. He would have come to Jesus with the question of, how can a sinful man like me love God with every fiber of my being? How can a sinful man like me love the people around me as much as I think about and am absorbed with myself? You see, it's the people who try the hardest, who really try to make love their life's aim, who are met with their love problem and become aware of their love problem. It's the people who try hardest to make love their life's aim who find Jesus most relevant to their life and who see him as a very relevant solution to their problem. When trying to live to up to divine standards, we look at and we say, and we realize we need divine intervention. But how can, a, how can someone like me attain the glory of God? It takes the glory of God come down to earth. We need his forgiveness hourly. We need his, his help hourly. And maybe, maybe you're here this morning um, with experiencing skepticisms. I don't know what everyone's relationship with Jesus is. I wonder if you have striven, strived to make love your life's aim. Do you, because... When we do that, we feel our problem deep inside. <clears throat> if you if you do make love your life's aim, or look at your love through the look at your life through the grid of love, I wonder if your questions would start to change, and not be so much the intellectual questions of how does this fit with that, but more of a personal, desperate set of questions. How how can someone who is loveless like me find acceptance with a God who is so big? How can someone who is loveless like me um, 
live with the guilt and shame that I experience with the lack of love that I've shown towards my neighbor. Maybe you are a Christian this, this morning, and you're in a season where the Bible is dry, and Jesus feels almost irrelevant to what you have going on in life. I would ask you to consider if love is currently your life's aim. Have you focused on other things, attached yourself to other aims? If your life's aim was recalibrated toward love, I wonder if your relationship with Jesus would find renewal. Going from feeling like you're following a God who asks you to do a bunch of spiritual chores in the midst of the things that you want to do, your busy schedule, to, a God, to following a God who graciously invites us towards a full, meaningful, and joyful life, and who has said, I will be with you as you, as you fail, as you try, as you walk towards loving other people, the, the most meaningful thing that you can do in your life. The lawyer is focused here on right answers and not living out the double love command. And so Jesus leaves it at that. Do this and you'll live. But the lawyer can't leave it there because Jesus has just become the judge and he's made the lawyer look a little bit elementary. Uh, he, he, can, he says the basics. So, so he has to kind of save face here. And he asks another question. Well, well, who's my neighbor? You can kind of imagine him like having some attitude. Like he just got kind of embarrassed and he's like, well, it's not super clear who my neighbor is. But that response, Jesus tells us, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so that response, to save face, it reveals more love problems. It's not a warm, honest question from somebody who really wants to love their neighbor. It's a cold, calculated question meant to identify who is the group of people that I really actually don't have to love. It's a, it's a question that's meant to lower the bar of love. Um, well, who... who to, to make the command an attainable thing for him. And it's at this point that Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's read it together. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is uh, a love story. It is not a rom-com. In the kingdom of God, the substance of love is not charming good looks, romantic dates, or the fiction that nothing else in my life is really happening except for this romantic relationship that I've got going on. Um, In the kingdom of God, we learn that love costs something. Uh, It is expensive. And love is uncomfortable. Let's look at the details in this text. First, love is expensive. Look at the sacrifice of time and money that the Samaritan uh, endures. He's on a journey. He's going somewhere. He's got stuff to do. And when he sees the man in the ditch, he lets himself become interrupted. 
He embraces the disruption of his agenda and his time. It's incredibly inconvenient. We need to see that. It's not like the Samaritan is just bumbling down the road and he's like, well, I got nothing better to do. He's going somewhere. He's on a journey. And not only does it cost him time, it costs him money. No doubt, like any financially responsible adult, he's budgeted for this trip. He knows how much oil he has, how much wine he has. He knows how much money he has. And he sees the man in the ditch, and he doesn't say, uh, things are tight. I'm not sure if I can do it. He pours out his oil and wine. He gives two denarii um, to, the, to the innkeeper. He, he opens a tab for the guy. The Samaritan is lavish. Second, he endures the discomfort of love by extending it to someone who's not like him. If you're not really familiar with the Bible, there's a really important detail in here that we might miss, that he's a Samaritan. And while that's a popular term, we don't necessarily know what it, why it matters for this story. It matters because the good guy of the story, for a Jew listening, uh, it would be a bit scandalous that the good guy was a Samaritan. Samaritans were part of a, Jew, uh, a, a sect in Israel um, kind of with a foreign background, and everybody who was a, a good Jew thought that they were ideologically backwards. There's a long history of hostility between Jews and Samaritans that would often break out in violence. Both sides despised each other. Both sides um, didn't just not like each other. They would, they would actually get violent towards one another. So in the story, it is a scum-of-the-earth Samaritan that stakes that risks his reputation among his own people and sacrifices the comfort of staying on his side of the socio-religious road to actually go across and go to the Jew. A man who was passed by by some of his own people, a Levite and a priest, people with very similar backgrounds to our, our lawyer friend who's listening to this conversation or listening to Jesus' story. I want us to see by telling this parable, Jesus is ripping the rug underneath of the lawyer. Remember that the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? Expecting Jesus, like a good Jew, to carefully tell him who's the groups of unlovable people, and so as make the command a little bit more doable for the, for the rest of us. But rather than lower the bar, Jesus blows the lawyer's ideas of love out of the water by describing a costly love full of unexpected expense and discomfort. Jesus, the masterful uh, teacher, the loving teacher, he's giving the lawyer and he's giving us a chance to confront our love problem. We are not the good Samaritan. Sure, we might respect the Samaritan. We might, uh, we might want to be like the Samaritan. Um, Maybe we, we've acted like the, the Samaritan here and there in our life, but fundamentally at the core of who we are, is this how we respond to situations that arise? Do we respond every time like the Samaritan does? The Samaritan patiently gave up his time and plans for the, wounded, for the wounded man. How often in your life and in my life do we respond to interruptions with impatient frustration, rowdy children that need discipline, <clears throat> friends that need our attention, Confused co-workers that need our support, again. A family member that needs a favor, again. People around us that we have not even bothered to get to know because our ambition has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the tasks before us. The Samaritan's financial generosity was lavish, and he wanted nothing in return. Take this to denarii, and when I come back, 
He's not even sticking around for the, the wounded guy to thank him. He's going. He's, he's pouring out his resources. How often in our lives, when it comes to helping with our money, do we make excuses? We have to meet saving goals. We don't make that much money. We're not sure if this is the right place to spend the money or if it'll be a wasted investment. Finally, the, the Samaritan endured the discomfort of helping someone who is very unlike him. How often do we ignore or disdain the suffering of the people that are not like us or far away from us? People who think differently, people who look differently, people with different political ideas, people with different lifestyle choices, people who live in a faraway place that's not like our own. So if we're not the Samaritan, where's our place in this story? It might sound strange, but I think one thing that Jesus is doing with this parable, here's where we're shifting our, our angle. One thing that Jesus is doing with this parable is he's, he's inviting us to see ourselves as the man in the ditch. Alone, hurting, from the ways that others have failed to love us well, from the ways that we have failed to engage and make costly love the aim of our lives. Some of us are in the ditch this morning, exhausted and worn out from trying to love, to make love our life's aim without Jesus. Some of us are in the ditch this morning, alone and without help, because we've made our life about ourselves, without thinking very much about our neighbor, without thinking very much about God. And some of us are in the ditch because people came along and they abused us and they did not love us. In the metaphor of the parable, they stripped us, beat us, and they left us. But in this story, there is hope and there is good news for people in the ditch. The man in the ditch was not left to die. The Samaritan saw the man and had compassion. So too, Jesus has seen you and he has had compassion well up in his heart. For you and your circumstances. The Samaritan poured out oil and wine and endured the cost of love to heal the man of all his wounds. Jesus has poured out blood and water on the cross, enduring the cost of love so that by his wounds you could be completely healed. The Samaritan showed mercy to a Jew, knowing full well who he was. Jesus shows mercy to you, knowing full well who you are. Rest this morning in the freedom that, of knowing that you are first and foremost the person in the ditch. You are first and foremost the one who has received love. God does not ask us to be like the Samaritan without first telling us that, we, that he is the Samaritan to us, that he has come to us. This brings us to the end of the story, verses 36 and 37, where we receive a love command. Look with me at verse 36. Jesus asks the lawyer after telling the story, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Just as the Samaritan proved to be a neighbor to the man in the ditch, the lawyer is to go and do likewise. Just as Jesus has proved to be a neighbor to us, we are to go 
and do likewise. Love was the aim of Jesus' life and ministry on earth so that he could save, redeem, and send out people whose, who, whose main aim in life is, in turn, love. It's only after we're pulled out of the ditch by the love of Jesus that we are in a place to then make love our life's aim. So what does it look like to, to obey this command, to practically pursue uh, love as our life's aim? A few big picture thoughts, a, few, a couple practical thoughts, and then um, I'll pray for us. First big picture thought. I would invite us to, to take a step back from our lives and to consider our, our aims in life. Whether you're in school, thinking about how you're doing in your classes, whether you're thinking about future career, whether you're already in a career, whether you have a family or don't have a family, what are the aims in your life? Where does love for God and love for others fit in that, in the, in that spread of aims? I found in my own life that when my own kind of goals in work or in life become central to, to what, I'm, what I'm about in life, I start to get unloving. That makes sense, right? When we're not thinking about love, then it makes sense that we're thinking about ourselves and we start to treat other people the way we shouldn't treat them. Um, and so even for myself, as I go back to, I'm a teacher, I'd had the summer off, I go back to school next week, and I start to think about all the things I have to do, all the things that I haven't done, and school's right around the corner. And then, I, and then this, the Lord was kind to me this week, um, you know, preparing a sermon uh, where there's, there's lots of other things I think about doing as getting ready for school, and the Lord is reminding me, love is your life saying, it's okay. It's okay that not everything's great. Not everything, I don't have my, all my T's crossed and my I's dotted because my main task is to love my students. And that's, and that's what God cares about, first and foremost. Second big picture thought, the aim to love is not about me. The aim to love is not about you in your life. The question is not, how can I become a good neighbor? Or how do I know if I'm being a good neighbor? This is a kind of self-serving love. When we visit a doctor... We don't want a doctor who is thinking to himself, I wonder how I can use this patient to make myself a good doctor. We, we want a doctor who's only thinking about us, only thinking about our needs, and he doesn't give a rip about his reputation. He cares about healing us or helping us uh, in, our, in our health issues. God doesn't want people who love in a self-serving way because they need to make themselves feel like they've been a good neighbor. Remember, that there's nothing left for us to gain. We've been pulled out of the ditch. Jesus didn't wait to see if we were good neighbors to pull us out of the ditch. He came to us because we were needy. We needed help. And then in that, he says, in the joy of being saved, go do unto others. Go, go, um, go find other people in the ditch. There's nothing for us in pulling people out of the ditch except for the joy of loving other people and knowing that that's what God has said is right and that's the main thing in our life. Third big picture thought, when we think about making love our life's aim, big goal, I think I've been convinced, read some things over the last couple of years, that change starts with the small choices that we make in life, small habits. And so while it is an application of this to go out, and if you see someone half dead on the road, you should help him. That is an application here. Um, we're probably not going to see that on our way home from church. And so what does it look like to, to start to walk in love and to make love our life's aim? Well, it takes the work, the hard work 
of changing habits. Um, and it is hard work to change our little things in our life that are about us, um, but it's necessary work. Uh, just like we spend a lot of time thinking about our career, thinking about our job, thinking about our hobbies, uh, the work, the career of the Christian is to love. And so it will take some time and intentionality to think, to reorient some things in your life, little things about around love and, and not around yourself. So here's a couple suggestions as to habits that we can change in our life to start to slowly turn the very slow-moving gears of our hearts away from ourself and, and towards love with God's help. Uh, let's, let's, I actually want to um, pick out a couple details from the story and make my suggestions based on that. So for the Samaritan, the event happened as he journeyed. It comes in the regular course of the, of the life of the Samaritan. And while it is true that everyone is worth costly love, you are finite and you cannot give costly love to everybody. And so one thing we can do is to, to, to consider the people that God has placed around us right now. Who has God put around you? Parents, siblings, your children, friends, students in your class, coworkers, people next to you who live next to you, real people that we call neighbors. Do we think about them as worth our costly love? Do we think about them at all? Um, as I think about making a habit, uh, habit, habits that change us, just thinking about the people around you and being a present listener will help us begin to tune into people's needs. If we really think that people are worth our costly love, then we will think that they are worth a little bit of our attention. We will never learn about needs by always deciding to sit by ourselves at the lunch table. We will never learn about needs by uh, sitting with people but tuning out. We'll never grow in relationship or gain trust with hurting people by always talking ourselves or half listening while we scroll through our phones. It will cost us something, the little, little productivity and little discomfort. But remember that Jesus came near to you not because it wasn't, was productive or comfortable. He came to you because you were worth the cost of his love. May God help us to see other people in that same way. Verse 33 says, as another one more uh, habit suggestion, when the Samaritan saw the man, his reaction was compassion. Um, <clears throat> it was, he had a kind of interruptible compassion. When he, when he was unexpectedly hit with the, the scene of a man in distress, his, his gut reaction was compassion. How can we practice interruptible compassion? One thing that we can do is let real suffering interrupt us to compassion. Now, this is easier when it's close to us. Yesterday, I, I was sitting on the couch on our deck, and my son did something small, hurt himself, and he had tears running down his face. And in that moment, just thinking about some of the things I was going to say, it was easy to, to stop and just feel compassion for him. It's harder the, the further out you go from your immediate life when you hear of a friend of a friend who has cancer, when you see on the news uh, of, of a shooting or something uh, terrible that's happening in another country, it's hard to let ourselves become interrupted and actually change our emotional, or let ourselves be emotionally affected, even if it's in a small way, even if it's just saying a prayer for them. That's not an easy thing. It costs us something. It's inconvenient when you're scrolling through the news because you want to 
find an update on, on something po political and you see a, a headline about something that's happened that's bad. It takes effort to stop, to become interrupted, and to feel compassion for whatever the situation is. Uh, it, it'll cost us something, but remember that Jesus didn't come and become interrupted and feel compassion because it was easy. He did it. Uh, he, he endured. He felt compassion and was driven to the cross um, again because he thought that you were worth his costly love. May God move us in the same way to feel the, the weight of suffering and to feel compassion for people even if we don't know them because they're God made in God's image. So let your life's aim be love. Uh, the main takeaway from this passage is probably what you might have thought when you came in here, knowing what you knew about the Good Samaritan. Uh, love your neighbor. Try to be like the Good Samaritan. But in our striving, we need to be honest with our love problem and see that, and, and, and in that, sitting in that, see our, our great need for Jesus. Before Jesus asks us to be the Good Samaritan, he invites us to be the man in the ditch who is pulled out, not because he's worthy, not because he knows a guy, but simply because he's in distress and he knows he needs help. Only then can we go and do likewise. <clears throat> Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not, as Son of God, stay in heaven but you saw us, you saw mankind, you saw us and you had compassion. We were sinful, we are sinful, and without help we are far away from you, running in darkness, ignorant of our need, uh, but Jesus, you came to us and you were lavish, pouring out yourself, pouring out your blood so that you could um, endure what needed to be endured so that we could come into your family so that we could be welcomed as sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that we are not lying in the ditch, but with your good news, we are, you have pulled us out. And not just pulled us out, but you've prepared us uh, to go and do likewise. So I pray, Lord, that you'd give us new eyes, eyes that see our own life and eyes that see others as, as worth costly love, as worth our ta the time and the money that it takes to focus on other people to think and orient our life around other people. Lord, you know, we know we need your help. You know that, that we can only do this with your help. And so I pray, Lord, that you would um, be gracious to us and that you would help us in this way. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.